Um, I also wanted to let you know about a missions opportunity coming up in July. And I hope some of you will pray about getting in on this. Sounds really exciting. It's a two-week opportunity to go over to Hong Kong, to China. And uh, it's, it's kind of presented as an English teaching thing, but really it's just an opportunity to go over and get to know some people and let some Chinese people practice their Chinese on you and be able to hopefully share the gospel. No, practice their English on you really would be better. Um, so, uh, but Kevin Ma, one of our missionaries, is here to, and I asked him to come and kind of share about it, and then he and Steve Bailey will be in the foyer after the service if you have any questions. But uh, listen to what Kevin has to say and then pray about maybe if this might be your vacation this year. Kevin? Good morning, everybody. Um, we're, uh, well, I'm just so thrilled to be here. Di's uh, jealous that she's not here, but um, Pastor Dave started us off. Uh, he recommended Diane and I for our first missionary trip, and um, it ended up being a journey that's led us to uh, Hong Kong and China, and now we're preaching and teaching out there. And so um, we're real excited because we get to now invite you guys to come see our city. And um, what it is, it's a summer, they call it summer English adventure. It's, it's a trip to China where there's, uh, China is 90% unsaved. And so we're going to have 200 kids, and most of them are not saved. And what we do is, since we're the teachers, which uh, don't don't get scared. There's there's no experience necessary, and I'm living proof to show that. Uh, I've been doing it for about five years, and it's it's friendship evangelism. You get ten kids, uh, two teachers assistants that know Cantonese. If there's something you want to share, they'll pop open their Bible and they'll share in Cantonese if it, if it's needed. But um, it's a classroom setting. Half the afternoon will be the, the classes, but the last half is your time. And these kids are just, basically, their English is not bad, but they're just shy. And so what we do is, I found out that one of the quickest things is take them out for ice cream. And then, and then next thing you're their best friend, and they want to know everything about you. And, and so as you do that, that opens the doors for um, sharing the Lord. And then... Um, dies doing the curriculum. Now, the, those are words that are supposed to comfort you. So comfort yourself with those words. That, the, this curriculum is, is not anything where adverbs and verbs and those type of things. But what it is is um, dies doing it off this, uh, it's called Manga Messiah. It's a comic book on the New Testament. And so as you pick out what uh, stories are there, you can share. There's plenty of uh, rich stuff to talk about. But we, it's, the, the preparation really is, is non-existent. It, it, it's just go share love on the kids. Um, we will, um, oh, the, there is uh, one requirement. It's just a lot of energy. It's going to, there's their kids and they play games and we're going to have a, a gospel camp, which will have a lot of games for three days. Uh, we'll just kind of be hanging around uh, in a city by the beach. And then they'll get a gospel message in Cantonese and an invitation, and then we'll do the follow-up. And so um, other than that, we will try to get 
Lord willing, a China leg into uh, mainland China on, on the border and either uh, do some work or you'll see uh, some of the things that we're doing out there. And so I would ask that uh, you guys would um, uh, pray on, on that, on coming to visit us, but also pray for the, the kids, their hearts, um, that they would be uh, softened and that the Lord would bring those he wishes to come to himself. And also uh, just keep uh, Hong Kong and China in prayer. Of course, Diane and myself, we'd appreciate that. And um, we will, uh, Steve and I will be in the uh, lobby if you have any information. We'll have an info, um, an interest sign-up sheet. So don't, if you, if you sign down, don't worry that we'll, we'll, we're going to come knocking. And, but if you have any information, Steve will, would want to keep in touch with you. And so we'll be out there. And if, um, just to let you know, Di and I would, would love to uh, share our city with you. And so thank you very much. So pray about that. Steve Bailey, you know, he's just paralyzed by the idea of teaching. But when he heard that the teaching involves just playing with kids and buying them ice cream, he, was, he signed up first. So um, if that sounds like maybe you've been thinking, I'd love to see China, I'd love to see Hong Kong, and uh, this is something for you to definitely pray about and a chance to have fun and really do some good and share the gospel as well. So... Sounds like a good opportunity, information in the foyer. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Mark chapter 15. <clears throat> We're coming towards the end of the Gospel of Mark, the second to the last chapter. and It's been kind of challenging to cover an entire chapter every Sunday morning. It's moving at a faster clip than we normally do. I thought it would be interesting to do this on a Sunday morning, though, because of the way that Mark is. Mark, as we talked about from the beginning, moves at a fast clip. It's the shortest of the Gospels. Mark was kind of the uh, ADD, ADHD Gospel writer and just gets right down to the story. And so now we've come to the most important chapter, the chapter well, the most important of four chapters in the Bible that talk about what the Bible is all about, and that is Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. And so when you look at this, you realize this is, as they say, the crux of the matter. When we talk about something as being the crux of the matter, as being the center of the matter, that comes from the Latin word for crucifixion and the reason or cross and the reason they say the crux of the matter is because whenever you're making an argument that's the crux of the matter you're saying that it is as central to the argument as the cross is to Christianity and for sure here as we come to this chapter we have come to the dividing point of all of history and all of life as we see Jesus Christ who came and he died for our sins, died for a purpose. In approaching this chapter, I've, it's really been kind of a challenge to think of, okay, what would God have me to share and to emphasize as we look at this 15th chapter? Because Mark kind of goes through quickly. His account is shorter than the other gospel accounts. You know, we have four gospels, and there are different purposes in each of the gospels. There are 
um, different audiences that they're intending for and a different theme to each gospel. But also, each gospel was a view that was written through a particular writer. And because the four writers of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are different people, we see what they emphasize as being different as the Holy Spirit reflects through them as, as people and, and gives a particular perspective on, on things. And so looking at the Gospel of Mark, it was rather challenging because there's so much about the death of Jesus that we often talk about that's left out in Mark. Whenever I talk about the cross, I, I so often am drawn to the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross that summarize so much of who he was and what he did. But here in Mark chapter 15, he only records one of them. And so there's not a lot to go on. A lot of the dialogue that went on during this is, is missing from this. Much of the details of, of even his, his physical suffering are pretty much glossed over or left out. And, and so I look at it and go, wow, you know, it's a quick story. But I began to line up all four Gospels and spent a lot of time this week comparing the accounts because I wanted to find what's the unique perspective of Mark? What is his angle that he is giving for us here? Because I don't want to miss it. And I, I, I've come to some conclusions. We're going to read through the chapter, but I've, and some of what I'm saying, you might think I'm stretching it a bit, but it, it really hit me this week how Mark's perspective is reflected, and also Peter's perspective, because remember, the gospel of Mark is at least partly a gospel of Peter. Mark was younger than the other gospel writers, but he was also, Peter was his mentor, and so many of the stories that are told in Mark are told uniquely from Peter's perspective. Um, Mark and Peter had kind of connected later. Now, you might think this is weird, and I'm not going to be too much of an amateur psychologist here, but I do want to mention before we read it, um, kind of a unique thing about Mark is that Mark was raised in a, in a single-parent household, apparently. He was raised by his mom without a father there that we know of. Now, we don't know a lot about Mark, but we know that because over in the book of Acts, remember when Peter was in prison and the angel came and released him and he left and he went over to the house church there and knocked on the door and the little girl came to the door and said, Peter's here. And they go, no, it must be a ghost. It couldn't possibly be Peter. Now get back here and help us pray that Peter will be released. And well, it says that that house where the house church was meeting was John Mark's mother's house not his father's house, his mother's house. And so you pick up that little bit. Now, something else to reflect on is that Peter, in a lot of ways, bears the likeness of somebody who perhaps was, didn't have a strong father figure in his life. And we'll talk about that a little later. You know, often when someone was introduced to us in the scriptural accounts, they were referred to as the son of whoever they were the son of. Like, for instance, James and John when they came on the scene as disciples and they were fishermen, in every gospel account, it talks about James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And they're referred that way often. But Peter and Andrew, who were fishermen also, who were there with them, are always referred to as Peter, 
the brother of Andrew, or Andrew, the brother of Peter, nothing about their dad. So I'm guessing that perhaps Mark and Peter kind of connected, at least partly, maybe because of sharing that. Now, uh, don't make too much of it, but consider it as we look through here, because we're going to see some uniquenesses in the passage that maybe that will help us to make sense. A couple of things I want you to notice, though, in this passage that are really unique. Um, There's a big emphasis on the fact that Jesus didn't defend himself, that he was silent as he was being accused. And in the context of that and throughout the passage, there's, there's not much of an emphasis on his physical suffering at all, but there's a huge emphasis, more than any of the other Gospels, in the verbal abuse that he endured, the insults and the, and the shame that he, was, that he was exposed to. And that seems to have had a big impression on Mark, who was a, a young guy at the time observing these things from afar, and for Peter as well. So look for those things, and, and then we'll see some other things that jump out as we read this passage. Beginning with verse 1, Mark chapter 15. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing. Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels, and they had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus, after he had scourged him, to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, there in the Antonio Fortress, and they called together the whole garrison. And what they did next, we've, we've found from history, was something that they would do often. They played a little board game, pretending that he was a king. And if you go to Israel, you see there in the Antonio Fortress, that board game is still carved in the, in the rock. They clothed him with purple. They twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spit on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, 
They took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he didn't take it. When they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others himself. (coughs) He cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic for, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the last, and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph, and then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen, laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. But what's the unique perspective that Mark and Peter kind of give us to this. And we can see, as you compare this with the other Gospels, there are some interesting 
a lot of interesting things than jump out, but I, I want you to think about something because I think the context helps us maybe to understand why this perspective is presented and why the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus had touched Mark and also Peter so. You know, God has designed us to be functioning as a family. And people who are the most emotionally healthy certainly are those who grow up in the security of a home where both parents are present. That's a real blessing if that's something that you've experienced. Now, I know you go, yeah, well, both parents were present, but yeah, I know you, you do have sinful parents. But to have both parents there means a lot. It does a lot. It's why we always try to encourage people to hang in there. It's so important for kids to grow up secure having that experience. However, for many of us and for many of people and probably for Mark and perhaps for Peter too, they grew up in, a, in an environment that was less than that ideal nuclear family. And often what happens to people who grow up with that insecurity, there, there isn't that strong feeling of father. Now, generally there's this thing that takes place where you try to find father figures by latching on to other people. You're, you're looking for a place to kind of plug in your umbilical cord to make that connection, to find that security. Because there's a lot to having a dad who lets you know you're okay. A, a dad who gives you a picture of what normal is. A dad who gives you a feeling of what safety and security is. That you know if something happens, dad's going to be there to back you up. And if you didn't have that as a father, you have some sense of what you missed, but it probably, hopefully, at least spurred you on to want to make sure you were the kind of parent who made your kids feel secure. Now, again, sorry about going on in my amateur psychology, but there is a point here somewhere. <laughs> now, what happens often to people who don't have that security? One of the things that happens is you, t you have to defend yourself. And often that's done with your mouth. Sometimes some of the mouthiest people are people who don't have that security that everything's okay because dad's at home. Dad's always going to be there for me. I can go to him and he's going to put his arms around me and make me feel safe. And so often you have to shoot off your mouth if you don't have a strong relationship with your father. Other people react to it by turning in completely and just not saying anything. But another thing that typically happens and is sometimes a part of the scenario is there's a, though there's a, a tough crust, people who grow up without that security of dad, often they develop a real combative kind of spirit where they, they're like an animal that's backed into a corner and they just want to fight. The kind of behavior that was manifest by Peter when he was in the garden. Now, Peter, when he was in the garden with Jesus and here the soldiers are coming, he pulls out a sword and starts hacking away. He didn't have a dad to teach him how to use a sword or somebody would have lost their head. But he had a sword and he made a guy lose his ear and then Jesus stuck it back and he felt stupid but often 
people who don't have the security of home find themselves fighting a lot, and most often fighting not because of something that happens, fighting because of something someone says. Because when you lack security, you're very vulnerable to words. The person who said, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, that's a lie. Especially for someone who doesn't have a secure home life. Because you find out sticks and stones are nothing compared to words that wound and hurt and rip and tear at the fabric of our soul. And that's doubly the case for someone who doesn't have dad to say, it's okay. You don't have to worry about what people say. And so quite often this is sort of the scenario. And, and you've, seen, you've all seen it happen, and many of you have lived this yourselves. Now I think for many of the disciples, there are textbooks of this. Peter wanting to latch on to Jesus, talking tough, listening to words, using his words, usually in a, in a wrong way. Think of what happened to Peter in the previous chapter. He had told Jesus, I'm going to be there for you. And he pulled out a sword to prove it. But now here he is facing the insults of a little girl. And he's crippled. And then as he denies knowing Christ and the cock crows, he just feels completely crushed. Jesus looked at him and he was just, oh. I didn't know I could do that. Showing that outward bravado and then, and then showing that inward injury of what happens when your mouth really isn't enough. But there are many of us who understand that and who know what that's like. And for the disciples to come along and connect with Jesus... It was interesting because Jesus was a guy who was insulted by people and his parentage was questioned often because there were wild stories about who his dad really was. And yet, Jesus had this amazing security because he spent time with his father constantly. And as he would talk to the disciples, he would talk about his father in a way that they would just go, oh man, let me in on that. Let me have that kind of a connection. And so they were looking to him as that kind of a figure, obviously. And so now when we come to him on the cross, now as we look at this chapter, given that little cultural background, there are a lot of things in this chapter that are unique, and I could speculate as to why. At the end of the chapter, the whole thing about Joseph of Arimathea going and negotiating this deal and being successful, that's you know the rich, powerful man coming to the rescue and doing this. I could, I could see why somebody who was raised without a dad would be impressed by that. Here's another potential father figure. But you see other little details throughout here that, that we could dwell on. Notice, you know, when it talked about, about the Cyrene who helped carry the cross, this is the only gospel that records his kids, Rufus and Alexander. Now, it could have been that Mark was friends of Rufus and Alexander and wanted to mention it, or it could have been that they wanted to, he just wanted to say, 
That's your, that was your dad that did that, you know, that that was, that that was an important detail to him. But, you know, the mention of the women being there, helping, noticing them afar off in their roles. For somebody who's raised by women, that would be something that's notable. I mentioned the sayings of Jesus on the cross. All the other sayings of Jesus not mentioned except the one where this guy who was so strong in his relationship with his father is now rejected by his father because of the sins that he took upon himself. That was what impressed them. This was the first time they had seen this, and it was, it was shocking when he, when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That there Jesus knew what it was like to be fatherless. He really understood what that pain was like, and, and they noticed that. And all of those things are interesting details, and there's a lot more. There are you know, little things in here that are mentioned that aren't mentioned in the other Gospels, and we see a lot of reasons. But I, but I want to call your attention just to a big picture thing, and, and that is, in this account, we don't see an image of Jesus being beaten and whipped and all that kind of stuff. That tends to be what we gravitate on, but really to guys, you know, without a dad, they know what physical pain is about, and that wasn't a big deal to them, and it really wasn't a big deal to Jesus as well. But, but the emphasis here is on these people were disrespecting him. They were insulting him. Most of the other gospel accounts don't say anything, for instance, about them spitting at him. None of them mentioned they were saluting him and blaspheming him in that way. And all, So many of those details that someone who's insecure and, and doesn't have someone to back them, they would look at that and go, this is the most horrible disrespect I've seen. This is one reason, by the way, why when you see in the inner city when so often there's a high rate of people who are, um, you know, fatherless, that major wars are started in communities because of someone being disrespected, because of someone saying something that was insulting. And to understand how that must have come off to these guys to see Jesus disrespected, and yet he's not lashing back. Now, they knew that Jesus was capable of defending himself. He was a strong man with a, with a sharp tongue and a quick wit and, and a brilliant mind. And often when they had tangled, boy, did he put people in their place and so often you'd see him talk to the Pharisees and you'd go, man, I would have loved to have said that, but what I would have said instead was, yeah, so are you. you know. And later I would think, oh, there was a better comment I could have come up with. But they knew, man, this guy, somebody wants to throw insults around? Oh, he could handle that. And yet here he is at his desperate hour and they're making all these jokes, and they're making all these insults. They're disrespecting and insulting him, and he's not saying a thing. 
They're coming up with these accusations, theological accusations that he could have defended himself with Scripture. Hey, this is the one who defended himself against Satan when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. But what's he doing? He answered nothing. Pilate's, do you answer nothing? Listen to what they're testifying. Jesus answered still nothing. Pilate marveled, and, and they must have too. But see, the picture that you get of Jesus here is he had a job to do. He had a focus. And so often in our personal insecurities, we can so easily get pulled off of our mission by fighting verbal battles, by defending ourselves, by putting down others, and thus sinking to that level of becoming like those who would accuse us. And I think what impressed these guys the most about Jesus is when he came to the cross, he knew what he had to do. And he knew that that involved death. He knew it involved suffering. He knew it involved being insulted and reviled. And he wasn't going to let that take him off his mission. He wasn't going to even be sidetracked with it. He wasn't going to even give a moment of distraction over to sticking up for himself because he was a man of all men who was secure. He knew who he was. He knew who his father was. He knew what he had to do. And he was ready to walk right into it like a man and face this and not get baited and pulled off into some silly insulting argument back and forth the way so often that we do. This security must have just so touched and impressed them that when they told the story of the cross, that was just what oozed forth. They left out all kinds of other details because, man, I'm telling you, he didn't say a word. He didn't answer back. He didn't defend himself. He didn't need to. He didn't feel the need to stick up for his pride. Oh, they insulted him, but he didn't take it as an insult. He didn't let other people, idiots with what they would say, define who he was. He was secure in who he was. Let them say whatever they want. I've got a race to run. I've got a job to do. It ends on that hill, and nothing's going to get in my way. Now, lest you think I'm just making this stuff up. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 for a moment with me. And let's see Peter's reflections on all of this years after the fact. Witnessing this changed Peter's life. 1 Peter chapter 2 Peter's talking specifically to servants and how they should relate to their masters, but look in verse 19. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, and he says parenthetically, of course, if you're getting beaten for something you did, <laughs> big deal. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. 
who, and now he quotes Isaiah 53 and then paraphrases it, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter was saying, man, it's just like Isaiah 53. I saw it, he was reviled, and he didn't revile in return. And there's a lesson for us in here. Now skip over to chapter 4 of 1 Peter. By the way, if you study the whole book of 1 Peter in light of this discussion that we're having, it'll bring a whole new meaning to Peter's talk about God as our Father. It'll give a whole new meaning to Peter's glowing over the inheritance that we have reserved for us in heaven. Here in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same kind of mentality. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now skipping down to verse 13, he says, But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. He said, when we suffer, we are sharing in his suffering, partaking in what he did. And in verse 14, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. They blaspheme you. They're not blaspheming you. They're blaspheming him. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. But let him glorify God in this matter. And then down in verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So... What do we take away from the way Jesus faced these insults, the way he faced reviling, the way he faced the, the humiliation of the cross and everything that came before it? And he didn't say anything. Well, a lot of times we don't need to say something. We feel like we do. But that's our insecurity talking. People who are against us do not define us. I don't care who they are, but there may be people who love you and then they say insulting things. You don't have to get the last word. The person who stays focused on their calling from God is the one who ultimately wins, not the one who gets the last word, not the one who sinks to the level of what someone else is doing. Let's be secure enough in God as our Father that, we, that cheap shots don't affect us in that way. Oh, it happens and it hurts. But we're better off taking it and crediting it to Him and knowing ultimately, I want to please Him. 
Rather than sinking to the level, if we defend ourselves, if every time someone insults us, we come back at them, we'll do nothing other than that. When you see people in the media that are saying things against Jesus or against his word, and you just think, oh, i got to tell them a piece of my mind. I'm going to write a letter to the editor, and I'm going to do, and somebody needs to stick up for Jesus didn't feel the need to. Stupid things people say doesn't define who he is. It doesn't define who we are too. And when you know you have a father who's taking care of you, and when you have a security of knowing that he is going to take care of you, then you can rise above the nonsense and the garbage that this life offers us. As they take their best shot, as they toss out their insults, as they reject us and deny the truth and all of that, we can realize, you know what? I have a job to do in life. I have a race to run. There's a calling that God has for me, and I cannot afford to get sidetracked by all this other nonsense that will take me away from doing what I'm called to do. If Jesus had been sidetracked, he would have lived a long life defending himself. But instead, he knew he needed to die for us. And he showed us that even when you can't feel your heavenly Father, even when it feels like he has forsaken you, you know better. Because you have a Father who will never leave you or forsake you. And he'll, he'll protect you when the time comes. But in the meantime, it's a privilege to suffer for him. When we don't deserve to suffer and we suffer, we are connecting with him in a way that we could never otherwise. And Peter saw that as a privilege. I believe Mark picked up on that. It took Mark a while to get his act together. He was a young, impetuous guy. He went off on a missions trip and bailed out early with, with Paul and Barnabas, then later went with Barnabas, then later was hanging out with Peter. But the end of Paul's life, Paul talked about, about Mark and said, he's a fellow soldier. He's beneficial. I respect him. When we stop trying to earn respect when we stop walking around with a chip on our shoulder and instead we just get busy doing what God has called us to do, ultimately, Father will take care of us. We will find our security in Him and we won't get pulled off task, off the calling that God has for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for demonstrating strength in silence for showing us that it's not always necessary to defend. That it's never worth shooting our mouth off and getting us off task away from what you've called us to. Lord, help us to continue to learn this lesson. Lord, you, you as our Heavenly Father, we, we have no excuse to not feel secure. Help us to get the chip off our shoulder and move forward, knowing that you're there even when we can't feel you. 
Help us to discover that secure life where you do what it takes, where you do what's necessary, when you move forward, running the race, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the one who went before us. We're sorry for being as insecure as we are. We realize with what you've done for us, that's really not necessary. Continue to teach us. Thank you for being patient with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If you're here today,